0: We'll hear argument next to number 98470, Roar Gas versus Marathon Oil Company.
1: Mr Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this case presents a single technical, jurisdictional, procedural issue. It is a case clearly a first impression here. It would not be here if you'd ruled on it before. But despite all those negatives, I submit that the case raises important issues both about the efficient functioning of the district courts and about the proper relation between courts of the states and courts of the United States. Although I view it as a case of first impression, I believe that a line of cases from this court has established a rule of law and that from that rule of law we can find the answer to this particular issue and the rule of law that I believe your cases support is that a federal court may make a wide variety of decisions prior to determining whether or not it has subject matter jurisdiction of the case, but that it may not decide any issue that relates to the merits of the case. We believe that that's a line that was clearly drawn in Steel Co. and a, a line that has been drawn in many of the other cases your cases say that the that a court can pass on the issue of class certification without deciding whether or not it has subject matter jurisdiction that was amchem of course that a court can hold that a lower court properly exercised its discretion in declining uh, to use pendant jurisdiction without deciding whether pendant jurisdiction existed under the circumstances of the case that a court can order younger abstention though it hasn't decided whether it has uh, subject matter jurisdiction that was ellis versus dyson Uh, that a court can rule on a uh, tag bar to habeas corpus without deciding whether it was prisoner in custody whether there is a final, an independent, adequate judgment, reason that would bar review by any federal court. We, we believe that there is, is a line of cases that provide the rule by which this case is to be measured. Then, immediately, I ask myself should there be an exception to that rule of law? Where is here the issue that the federal court decided without deciding whether it had subject matter jurisdiction is one that would have preclusive effect so that it would bar a state court from making an independent judgment on that I submit that there should not be uh, an
0: exception to the usual rule on those grounds. Mr. Wright uh, the, the majority in the Court of Appeals in this case uh, Reversed the district court, did it not? Yes, sir. And the the dissenters said that they would uphold, they would affirm the district court. Yes, Your Honor. So it would have come out differently in the district court if the uh, dissenters' views had prevailed. That is correct, Justice Mr. Chief Justice.
2: Mr. Wright, you're not arguing that the Constitution requires one approach or another?
1: Justice O'Connor, I'm not arguing that at all. Uh, My submission is that district courts ought to have discretion on these matters and decide what is the most efficient and expeditious way to dispose of the case so long only as they do not get into the merits of the case without having first decided that they have subject matter jurisdiction to determine the merits.
3: When we write the opinion, should we say that that discretion should be exercised in a way so that personal jurisdiction... Is usually decided after subject matter jurisdiction, all other things being equal
1: it seems to me you could well write the opinion that way I, should we if I were writing it, I would not write it that way. I would write it simply as a as a general grant of discretion to the to the district courts to to decide which issue they 're going to resolve first. I would not impose on them any rigid ordering but as long as the ordering is is simply a presumptive priority for subject matter jurisdiction I think that could be perfectly... Well
3: is there not a value to federalism in deciding subject matter jurisdiction first in an instance like this uh, so that in the event it does not exist the state can address its own long-arm statute?
1: I wonder if I could answer that by putting to you a hypothetical
3: so long as you answer the hypothetical (laughs) one.
1: I'm surely going to answer the hypothetical. In fact, I think it's self-answering. I hope so. Let us suppose that in this case, our only argument for federal jurisdiction was fraudulent joinder and therefore diversity, an argument that NORD should not have been a party and then there would have been complete diversity. And that the basis of the argument for fraudulent joinder is that even if there was personal jurisdiction with regard to the claims of Marathon, there was not personal jurisdiction with regard to the claims of Norge. And let us suppose that the federal court says, no, you are wrong. There is personal jurisdiction over Norge's claim. Therefore, Norge is properly a party. Therefore, there is no diversity and remands the case to the state court. In my submission, we could not then come in and seek to relitigate the issue in state court of whether there was personal jurisdiction of the claims of Norwich against us, that that would have been an issue determined by a, a federal court, and under Baldwin versus Iowa Traveling Men, we would be barred from ever raising that again. That would mean that the state court would never have had an opportunity to pass on that issue of personal jurisdiction.
3: Well, my my, my question was directed to this. It seems that you give no weight at all to subject matter jurisdiction as having some sort of a priority over personal jurisdiction, assuming both are, both are of equivalent um, uh, difficulty? And isn't there a federal interest in allowing the state, uh, in, in an instance somewhat like this, uh, to have the, f- the first opportunity to address its own long-arm statute, assuming there's uh, subject matter jurisdiction and personal jurisdiction in the district court, or questions of equal difficulty?
1: Of course, there's always a federalism.
3: Because you indicate that there is some discretion, and I want to know what, uh,
1: uh, what, are the, what are the determinants in guiding that discretion. Well, I think that an important determinant in guiding the discretion would be the extent to which this would require the federal court to pass on difficult issues of state law, the extent to which the questions of personal jurisdiction are intertwined with the question of subject matter jurisdiction, as indeed we think they are here, but all of those would
0: be relevant considerations in deciding which issue you would, should address first. You, you go further, I take it, than the dissenters in the Court of Appeals. As I understand their position, it was the, presumptively you decide the, juris, the subject matter jurisdiction first, but it's not an ironclad rule. The majority said it's an ironclad rule. You, you would say basically just leave the whole thing up to the district court.
1: As the lawyer for Gas, I would say we are very happy with the rule announced by Judge Higginbotham and the dissenters in the Fifth Circuit. If I were sitting in my office writing an article, I would say that it ought to be a general discretion.
4: And yet there are many authors who have distinguished subject matter jurisdiction as being the most basic from personal jurisdiction, which those authors have ranked along with, say, Venue as a merely dilatory defense suggesting that there is a hierarchy here and that subject matter jurisdiction is the more basic.
1: Justice Ginsburg, I I would say that I would not agree with them, that I would agree on the great importance of subject matter jurisdiction. My friends do me the honor of quoting from one of my books in which I, in turn, quoted ex-Justice Curtis that questions of jurisdiction are questions of power as between the central government and the states. I believe that deeply. But I do not think that personal jurisdiction is some sort of second-class issue. It is a, a, an issue that stems from the Constitution, from the Due Process Clause, and I do not think that you can say that Article 3 takes priority over the Fifth Amendment.
4: I was quoting your Text when I use the word dilatory.
1: I imagine that uh, I recognize the words.
5: <laughs> I think the point of your hypothetical was that uh, sometimes in deciding the subject matter case whether removal was proper, a district judge would decide a host of state law questions, personal jurisdiction questions, all kinds of other questions.
1: Yes, sir. Right, right. So who's
5: to say? In other words, if your interest is in protecting the state, who's to say? It depends on the case. Is that is that? That, basically that is
1: exactly my submission. No. Uh, I could give another example. Suppose a suit in state court asking $50,000 in damages for breach of contract and a $1 million in punitive damages. The case goes to the federal court, diversity being present. The federal judge says, in this state, the state law does not allow punitive damages in a breach of contract action. Therefore, the amount in controversy is not satisfied. Therefore, I am remanding. I think that the plaintiff in that case would not be allowed to claim in, in state court that uh, it could get punitive damages. Now, obviously, that would not be a binding declaration as to what the law of that state was to be for the future, but as between the parties to that litigation, that it would have issue a preclusive
4: effect. Mr. Wright, as to the preclusive effect, imagine that this case had been dismissed for want of personal jurisdiction. Plaintiffs begin all over again in state court, and they say, State court, the first thing we want you to do is to give us a declaration that there is personal jurisdiction, and the reason that you are not bound by that federal court is they lacked subject matter jurisdiction, and that's open to collateral attack, so that your premise about the preclusive effect is wrong the Federal Court would be accomplishing nothing because it wouldn't bind the State Court.
1: Justice Ginsburg, I don't believe that the, that the party would be allowed in State Court to challenge the preclusive effect of the judgment by saying that the Federal Court lacked jurisdiction to issue that judgment. I think of Chico County as a case that, uh, that you can't challenge in A second proceeding, whether there was jurisdiction in the first proceeding. But
0: how about Trinies versus Sunshine Mining? Didn't that say you could challenge the basis of jurisdiction? You could relitigate the issue of uh, jurisdiction if the first court had not had jurisdiction?
1: I'm, I'm sorry, Justice Rehnquist, I'm, I'm not prepared
0: on that case. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that's right.
6: But all of, all of those cases, in any event, uh, uh, involve a, a, a court that, that reached the merits which, which assumes that it has jurisdiction. Here you have a court which never even assumed that it has jurisdiction, even if your ordinary rule is that it can't be attacked collaterally, where it has proceeded with an affirmance of its jurisdiction has proceeded to the merits. Here you have a case that doesn't fall into that uh, into that pattern. You have a case where even the court issuing it says, "You know, I don't really know if we have jurisdiction. Why, why should any subject? Why, why should any later court? Uh, it decided the case on a, on a different jurisdictional issue, and therefore never spoke to its own ju- uh, uh, subject matter jurisdiction."
1: Well, I go back, Justice Scalia, to I think it's 183, McCormick versus Sullivan that after a judgment in a federal court, you cannot resist enforcement on the grounds that, in fact, there was no diversity. Diversity was — the existence of diversity was not challenged in the first proceeding, but your Court held that a
4: final judgment is not to be attacked for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. But here it is attacked in the first proceeding, and the Court says, well, I can pick and choose. I'm not going to deal with subject matter jurisdiction, just personal jurisdiction. The the state then says, fine. It's never been litigated, so we will litigate it. We will decide for the first time that there was no subject matter jurisdiction, therefore nothing else that was done in that action counts. So, so you would
6: have a, a, a delightful, uh, a quite parallel uh, situation. The um, the federal court will have decided the personal jurisdiction question for the state courts, and the state courts will have decided the subject matter jurisdiction <laughs> question
1: for the federal courts. I like it. <laughs> Well, I don't think I do. I, I like uh, I, I like judgments of federal courts uh, to stand and, and not be challenged on the lack of, ground of lack of subject matter jurisdiction. But,
3: but why isn't that exactly the respondent's point? Uh, they say this does show the intrusive effect on the state court system, which is why you have to reach subject matter jurisdiction, they say, always first. Other people might say uh, most of the time first. You seem to... F- Think that it doesn't make much difference.
1: Well, I'd, as I suggested a moment ago, be perfectly content with saying that mostly you consider it first. But look at a case such as Caterpillar. But, but why? Why is that? Why, why is why, it why
3: should we usually consider subject matter jurisdiction first?
1: It, it, it is a threshold issue. But threshold issues not always have to be considered first. That uh, was what specifically was said in Lambrecht v. Singletary.
5: What is the source? Sorry, are you you finished answering that? Uh, What what is the source, which I've often wondered, of of rules of law that say you always have to decide some question of a certain kind first? For example, jurisdiction before merits. I mean, I've never seen anything on the Constitution that says that. I don't think Madison wrote about it. I haven't seen a statute that says it. Is it from the brooding omnipresence in the sky? I mean, where where does it come from?
1: I think it comes, Justice Breyer, from Article 3, that the judicial power of the United States extends only to certain kinds of cases. And that uh, that therefore, you have to find out whether this is a case that uh, is within your jurisdiction. But... You have to do that before you decide the merits. You don't have to do that before you decide whether to refuse class certification. And you don't have to have subject matter jurisdiction from the beginning. This is Caterpillar versus Lewis, in which not only was there no uh, subject matter jurisdiction at the time the case was commenced, but when the non-diverse defendant, Wayne, was dismissed, it would have been too late to remove the case to federal court. if the Did we get that one right in your view? You did exactly right. All nine of you. <laughs> well, I
6: wasn't sure. <laughs>
4: <laughs> there was some compelling practical consideration in that case, though, was there not? I mean, they had an entire trial. I mean, after the trial, there was perfect diversity. Uh, it would have been Passing strange to send that thing back to start from square one I, I agree
1: completely i 'd be a tenth vote for that proposition, Justice Ginsburg. That was a very compelling case, but I think that the considerations of efficiency and economy on which you expressly relied on your opinion in that case are always considerations that the courts have to take into account. They will be most compelling as in your case, where there had been a finished trial. But that doesn't mean that they do not exist at an earlier stage in the litigation. Uh, My friends undertake to dismiss Caterpillar in a footnote of page 13 of their brief uh, by um, saying it really didn't amount to anything, not at all like this case, where there is a continuing lack of jurisdiction. I submit that's not an accurate description of this case. There is no lack of jurisdiction in this case. The issue simply has not been decided. The Embank Court expressly vacated so much of the panel decision as it passed on subject matter jurisdiction and remanded the case for the district court to decide whether it had subject matter jurisdiction. That decision has not yet been made, so it can't be uh, looked at as a case with a continuing lack of subject matter jurisdiction, but as a case in which the issue of subject matter jurisdiction has not yet been determined.
4: But in your view, it need never be determined because if the district court is right that she could dismiss for personal jurisdiction and that binds the state court, then subject matter jurisdiction is never determined and properly so.
1: I I agree entirely with that. And I I think the same thing is is true in AMCAM, that subject matter jurisdiction never has to be decided because you hold that the class should not have been certified and so you don't pass on the both constitutional and statutory objections to subject matter jurisdiction that were present in that case. If there are no further questions, I will reserve my time.
0: Thank you, Mr. Wright. Mr. Hutchinson, we'll hear from you.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May I please the Court? What petitioner proposes here is to ignore a first principle, the carefully defined and limited power of federal courts. Efficiency jurisdiction is wrong for three reasons. First, it violates fundamental constitutional principles allocating judicial power between the states and the federal government. Second, it negates congressional policy favoring remand. And third, and ironically, it's inefficient. Federal courts can't act without power.
2: Well, he uh, — Mr. Wright gave several examples of situations where courts apparently properly and with our approval in some instances have decided certain things other than subject matter jurisdiction before reaching the merits and that have disposed of the case insofar as the federal court is concerned. For instance, class certification, as you kidding. just heard. Now, what about all those cases? And he, he recited uh, several others, pendant jurisdiction, younger abstention, and so on.
7: The abstention cases, uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, involve situations where the federalism uh, issues aren't raised. There the Court is, is declining uh, jurisdiction when it has uh, jurisdiction. Uh, in the Lambrick's case- well,
2: without deciding- in some instances, like class certification, without even deciding whether they're subject matter jurisdiction.
7: Class certification is a different uh, issue, Justice O'Connor. In the AMCHEM case, uh, what, what the court said is that the, the certification issue was, an, was a logical antecedent to determination of subject matter jurisdiction. Before justiciability could be analyzed in the AMCHEM case, which was the issue that was being raised by one segment of the class, the court had to determine exactly what is this class so that it can then address subject matter jurisdiction. And in fact, I think AMCAM is a very good illustration of efficiency jurisdiction, as as, uh, uh, Judge Becker pointed out. Uh, That was a wonderfully efficient case. Judge Becker called it a humongous class of asbestos cases. But he said the court can't go beyond its power. And that's what it did when it certified these cases. Uh, what, said, what,
2: if the, what if the subject matter jurisdiction issue turned on some fact-finding that would take place at trial? What's the court going to do then? And yet here's a personal jurisdiction issue just sitting there, right there, that the court could decide. What's it going to do?
7: The court doesn't have the power, uh, Justice O'Connor, to decide that issue until it determines that it has the capacity to decide the case. And that comes from the fundamental difference between So you say it would
2: have to go to trial and determine these factual questions despite the lack of personal jurisdiction.
7: Uh, Justice O'Connor, you can I think there are hypotheticals that you can come up with that uh, make it difficult for a court to determine subject matter jurisdiction. I think that is rare. I think Professor Wright himself has indicated those what if we have a
2: rare case?
7: In the rare case, the Court has to undertake whatever procedures it has to uh, to resolve uh, whatever antecedent issues it has to in order to get to that uh, nub uh, issue of subject matter jurisdiction.
2: Uh, In other words, you want to support a per se rule no matter what. You you have no exceptions in your view.
7: The exceptions, uh, Justice O'Connor, are those which have been established in the cases, for example, the inherent power cases, which deal with the Court's authority to manage uh, its docket uh, and to manage proceedings before it. But when a Court goes beyond that, beyond that inherent power to maintain the status quo, then it is, it is uh, uh, exceeding its power under Article Three. And if
6: do you if, do you um, uh, subscribe to that even even when it is not a removal case, even when huh? the alternative is not uh, the same case proceeding in state court, or is it just in these removal situations?
7: Justice Scalia, I think it applies. The, the from constitutional standpoint, it would apply across the board.
6: So in uh, all so cases, even even if it's not a removal case, uh, where there is a. Uh, Um, personal jurisdiction issue and a subject matter jurisdictional issue, you would say that the Federal Court has to decide the subject matter jurisdiction first or else it has no authority to pronounce on personal jurisdiction?
7: Yes, Justice Scalia, I would. Now, in the the removal cases, there are some factors that are particularly uh, aggravating. There's more potential for abuse. There's the situation, kind of an anomalous situation, that a defendant has removed to Federal Court claiming subject matter jurisdiction and then, as in this case, tells the District Judge I have removed it to you, asserting subject matter jurisdiction. But you don't even have to address it; you can uh, circumvent
8: it.
4: Mr. Can I ask you
8: this question about uh, two possible bases for challenging subject matter jurisdiction. One would be that the plaintiff does not have standing, and the other would be that the question is so frivolous that it doesn't merit review at all. Which must be decided first, as between those
7: two? Insubstantiality and, and statutory standing or constitutional standing? Constitutional standing and insubstantiality. Uh, Justice Stevens, I, I think that was part of the, the, uh, the questions that were uh, discussed at, at uh, some length in the Steelco case, which is whether oh, you can. Well, okay. That, that, the issue of, of what there the what court type have a, of would have a choice constitutional versus statutory standing. And I would submit to the court that, in, in one sense, that's two sides of the same subject matter jurisdictional coin, and that's very different. From the situation we have here, subject matter jurisdiction, and the power of the court, and the now, and that, defense of the party. But,
6: but Justice Stevens is correct that we do use uh, what you might call an efficiency model whenever we allow a dismissal on jurisdictional grounds because the federal claim is frivolous. I mean, you're you're uh, without looking into whether there is subject matter jurisdiction for you know for other reasons. We just say the federal claim is frivolous, and 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 as Steelco makes clear, that is regarded as a jurisdictional dismissal. What what is there to be said for that except efficiency?
7: What is to be said to that, uh, Justice Scalia, to distinguish it is that the court is looking at subject matter jurisdiction. It may be applying an efficiency uh,
9: uh, uh, factor. Yeah, but it's not looking to Article Three jurisdiction, is it? For it's looking It's looking to the statute, isn't it? It may be. It may be. Well, and and if it does that, and if that is proper, then, in effect, we've already decided the issue as to whether the Article 3 point always and under all circumstances must take precedence. I don't quite follow that,
7: Justice Souter. It it seems to me that uh, when you're saying it's insubstantial, you're saying it's not a case of controversy under Article 3. Uh, otherwise, you would, well, we
9: we are we are saying in the first instance that it's a frivolous claim in relation to the statute under which it is brought. That that may be a basis for that kind of an efficiency dismissal. Uh, you're not so saying it's, Excuse me.
8: You're not saying it's not a case or controversy. You're saying the federal basis for the for the controversy is so frivolous, so there's merit to it. And the example, of course, is the census case we just decided. There was clearly a, a controversy there, but avoiding the standing issue, the court said, well, there's no merit to the to the federal claim, and it, so it. it Dismissed for want of jurisdiction without reaching a jurisdictional standing question.
7: But what the court, what the court did there uh, was address its capacity to act, its power to act over the case, and that's very different from the individual right. But that's it been clearly clear. had
8: power to act over the case. It could have decided that case ahead of the other one. It surely had power before it decided the first case to decide the second case. You wouldn't deny that. The court has to have power
7: before it can act.
0: I would not. Well, how how about Rule rule 12b and the the way it lists the various defenses? And uh, number one, of course, is lack of jurisdiction over the subject matter. Number two, lack of jurisdiction over the person. Then it goes on. And that has not been treated necessarily as a hierarchical thing. It seems to me that gives the courts considerable uh, discretion. As to which of those defenses to take up first,
7: but it has been treated uh, hierarchically. Has it, uh, it uh, in the rule itself? Well, uh, some some uh, some of the uh, some of the defenses are waivable. Some are not. Uh, some some uh, must be decided first.
0: Yeah, is there an authoritative case law to that effect?
7: Uh, Justice Scalia, I was uh, I was actually referring to uh, to, uh, uh, to Professor Wright's treatise, yes. and that is correct. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
7: I may, you're, is
4: that
6: raised Judicata here too? <laughs> <I> just,
7: uh, <laughs>
4: it is not. It is
7: not Justice Scalia, but I thought the uh, uh, some of the language.
4: Subject matter jurisdiction is preserved, and it can be raised later and later. So it's the most holy one in that respect. But there is no um, in Rule 12b. It, it says the only economy thing in the rule is if you got one, try to bring them all at the same time. Except if you leave out subject matter jurisdiction uh, and and one or two others, that you could bring those up later. But that that's all that Rule 12b says. It says here the here are these. Pre-answer defenses. You can bring these up by motion pre-answer, and you should, if you bring one, bring all the others that you have at the same time. Except there are certain ones that you don't, that are, that are saved out, even if you don't bring them. That's all that Rule 12 says. It doesn't say that you must um, bring subject matter jurisdiction, and if you don't, and if you bring, you can't bring personal jurisdiction. It doesn't have any of that kind of ranking.
7: Well, what what I was referring to, uh, Justice Ginsburg, was Rule 12H, uh, which indicates that uh, a defense of lack of jurisdiction over the person, improper venue, insufficiency of process, uh, all those things can be waived. Uh, But, but, uh, jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction. uh, (laughs) Yeah, because
4: there's always jurisdiction over the person by consent. So there's that difference, but how does it relate to the issue that's, that's before us? And you have been talking largely in the abstract. One response that I give to your floodgates, oh, this is going to be deceptive, you're predicating rather dumb district judges. I mean, if su- subject matter jurisdiction is phony, the district judge is going to say, get rid of it, send it back. I mean, diversity, is there diversity? Is there a federal question on the face of the complaint? Every, I thought everybody agreed that in most cases the lack of subject matter jurisdiction is clear. So you don't get this floodgate. On the other hand, there is what Justice O'Connor referred to as a rare case, which I looked at this case and said, well, maybe this is it, in that this party, Noria, that's, a, that's alleged to be um, fraudulently joined as a, as a plaintiff. That, that's all bound up with the merits of this case. So that you may not be able to sort out whether there, there was a sham party that um, inserted simply to block diversity until you get to the merits and to see whether this lawyer has any real substance.
7: That suggests, though, uh, Justice Ginsburg, that, that a court has, may re- uh, pre-try a case in determining remand, and that would be against congressional policy that if all doubts would well, be resolved. Well, let's
4: not talk about policy about specifics. The district judge says, gee, you can't cre- create – an absence of diversity in a phony way any more than you can create. So I have to see whether there is really diversity. And there is really diversity if Noria doesn't belong in this litigation. But I can't tell that in this complicated picture till we get some kind of uh, evidentiary hearing.
7: But in this case, the only evidence in the case was that Norga owned the license and that that license was damaged uh, by, the, by the acts of rear gas. That was the only evidence before the Court. It was indeed a simple question. The all, and that's, that's the, the irony of this case, is that the subject matter jurisdiction questions were easy.
4: Well, why was it so easy when, when the Fifth Circuit itself, the majority said, gee, we're a little uncertain about that panel that, that held there was no subject matter jurisdiction. So we think it better go back to the District Court to decide. If it was all that easy, then the majority of the Court of Appeals surely would have said, yeah, the panel got it right. There's no subject matter jurisdiction. But they took the extraordinary step of saying, we're not going to go back to that panel decision. We want the district judge to explore all these questions. So if, we, if you were right about it, it was easy, then why didn't the panel decision stand?
7: I can't speak to the to the dissenters uh, or why they didn't allow the panel. I'm talking about
4: the Court, the majority, not the dissenters. The Court could have said, subject matter jurisdiction has to be handled first, and the panel had it right. There was no subject matter jurisdiction. Isn't that what the, the three-judge panel decided? There yes, was no?
7: Justice, Justice Ginsburg, the, the, the majority could have done that, but they, they decided to return it to the District Court, and I don't know why.
8: May I ask, uh, just to, sh- to understand the purity of your position, If the attack on personal jurisdiction had been insufficient service of process, they challenged the way in which the process was, would you still say that could not be decided before the subject matter jurisdiction issue? In other words, take this example. Supposing you have attack on the line-item veto case and you want to challenge the standing of the plaintiff. And the motion to dismiss has two grounds. One, he doesn't have standing for all sorts of cases. Secondly, they didn't leave the summons at the right uh, person at the corporate, wherever it should have been left. Must the judge decide the standing
7: issue before deciding whether the service was proper, in your view? In my view, yes, Justice Stevens. That The, the court first must satisfy itself. It has Article Three. Uh, power over the case before it can address why? Interest. why
5: Why? I've always wondered this, and I'm not saying there's no answer to it. It's not, but but, but if, uh, all these cases, indeed, where it's Article Three power versus the merits, uh, they, they all uh, are cases in which it's arguable both ways, whether there is or there isn't the Article Three power. We're only talking about cases in which a district judge could be re- reasonably uncertain. So if this is so holy that you have to decide the question of power first, why don't you have to have an immediate appeal? I mean, suppose the district judge were to get it wrong. Suppose horror of horrors, he were to think there is Article Three power to hear this case, and he's wrong. There isn't. Why is he permitted to go ahead with the merits before all that's finally resolved on appeal, perhaps by Sir certiorari? Courts, courts
7: can get it wrong, Justice Breyer, mm-hmm. but the fact is they have to get it. They have to determine. Why have to make that determination?
5: Why, why? In other words, why is it that it's absolutely incumbent upon the the, the, the district judge to decide every difficult, no matter how difficult, question of Article Three power first, including yours here, before going on to another easy question? But it isn't incumbent upon the system to decide that question definitively first.
7: Because of Article Three and the limited power of the federal courts, if you allow the court to exercise power before it determines that it has power, then it has exceeded.
5: Exactly. So why don't we rate. have to have appeals and certiorari and really get it solved before we can go ahead to the merits? It's a constitutional matter, after all. How, how, why don't you have to have a full range of appeals first? Because,
7: because Congress has spoken to that in a removal case, mm-hmm. and they've said if, if in remand, it cannot be appealed. And I think that... that of course, you're not giving the me the
5: answer correctly that I'm looking for, which is it would be totally impractical. Now, is, it. That, is, that, is that relevant?
7: It, no, Justice Breyer. Efficiency can never uh, trump uh, constitutional but, principles. But, but, but a there's a
3: constitutional principle that the... Uh Defendants asserting with reference to personal jurisdiction as well. Suppose you have somebody uh, who sued in Texas. He said, I've never been in Texas. And they say, oh, you negotiated a deal there. No, I did that in San Francisco. Just a factual determination. Was he ever in the state of Texas? Was it in San Francisco or Houston where he had the one deal that he negotiated in the United States? He's from overseas. He says, "You you have no constitutional power over me. You would say, well, we want you to go to Houston and spend hundreds of thousands dollars on attorneys uh, uh, litigating subject matter jurisdiction first. That, it seems to me, is a serious abridgment of his personal right not to be subject to the jurisdiction of the court. And you just sweep that under the rug.
7: It is it is an individual right, and that's what distinguishes it from the, the institutional integrity of subject matter jurisdiction. But there's a practical side uh, to this as well, because in, in this context... It is, the, it is the defendant who makes that selection. Here, defendant has said, I have an easy Well, Well, but, question. of course,
3: you, you apply your rule across the board even to non-removal cases. So in my, in my hypothetical, uh, he was sued in the district court originally. And you still say he has, to, he has to submit himself to the subject matter jurisdiction argument by hiring attorneys and making special appearances and so forth. That, 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 that's not the, the, uh, the rationale. Of the statutes that um, of the constitutional provision that gives you protection against a a court asserting jurisdiction over you, if if it has no personal jurisdiction under the Fourteenth Amendment.
7: Every every defendant is going to be inconvenienced, but the the sanctity of the federalism system uh, must take priority uh, over that determination. And we're not in our in our situation saying that personal jurisdiction is not important; it shouldn't be decided. It will be. But in the, what in what the,
3: authority do you have, from the standpoint that federalism takes uh, precedence over personal over personal freedom,
7: over the, what, over what, the right of case, the individual? What,
3: what case do I cite when I write the opinion that has that?
7: I would I would, cite, I would cite those cases that define what is a jurisdictional prerequisite for the case for the court to act. Uh, the Zipes case, which said it is a uh, jurisdictional prerequisite if it can't be waived if it can't be established by estoppel. I would cite Republic National Bank and Landcraft for the principle that a jurisdictional prerequisite speaks to the power of the court, not to the rights of the parties. I would cite the Kasperi case for the principle that a jurisdictional prerequisite must be raised by the court sua sponte. None of those apply to personal jurisdiction. uh, Some of the, the points Uh, Justice O'Connor, you raised some of the cases that you mentioned, the Lambrick's case, for example. The Lambrick's case dealt with the Teague rule. In the Kasperi case, that very issue was raised uh, by this Court. Is the Teague rule a threshold jurisdictional issue? And the Court said no. It's waivable. Uh, And therefore, it doesn't rise to the level of a prerequisite that has to be considered by the Court. In the AMCAM case, the the class certification was logically antecedent uh, to a finding of subject matter jurisdiction. In the inherent power cases, such as uh, or Willie actually wasn't an inherent power case, it was a sanctions case, that was the Court's power to manage uh, that was being invoked. And there are limits to that power, as this Court found in the Catholic Conference case. In the Catholic Conference case, uh, the District Court uh, had ordered discovery, uh, and it was a contempt uh, uh, motion uh, in connection with that discovery. And the Catholic Conference case said the discovery sought in that case was not for the purpose of determining subject matter jurisdiction. Therefore, it exceeded the Court's power.
8: May I ask you to comment on another consideration that occurs to me as I think about the problem? Sometimes the jurisdictional issue, like a standing question, will raise a serious constitutional question, whereas the personal jurisdiction may merely be a matter of fact or interpreting the provision of state law. Uh, What about commenting on our policy of trying to avoid difficult constitutional questions when there's another principled basis for decision available? I I, am
7: familiar with that line of cases, uh, Justice Stevens, but, again, uh, I don't think that rule can be taken uh, uh, this far. Uh, And to say that the court goes into a balancing... You'd say that even if there's no personal jurisdiction, we have an obligation
8: to address a difficult constitutional question. You have uh, yes, just
7: must decide it. Must decide it first. And and what is? Then you're withdrawing
4: from one thing you said in your brief, which you said if the subject matter jurisdiction question is real tough, this is on page 1819 of your brief. If it's real tough, there's a simple solution: remand. Don't decide it. So you you said I think twice in your brief that subject matter jurisdiction doesn't have to be decided by the federal court. If they find it a tough question, they should just send the whole thing back to the state court. I think you're are you modifying that? Because here you seem to say they must decide it.
7: Now, Justice Ginsburg, in a in a uh, removed case, uh, the, the courts are uniform in saying that doubt should be resolved in favor of remand in order to follow the the dictates of Congress uh, in the removal statutes. And as this Court recognized in the International Primate, there is, these are mandatory uh, statutes. Uh, and that's what we meant uh, in our brief that when there are doubts, those doubts should be resolved in favor uh, of remand.
4: Well, what does that mean specifically? Does it mean that, as you seem to imply here, the court says subject matter jurisdiction case, messy here. We maybe have it, maybe we don't. But resolve that doubts in favor of remand. remand. We decide nothing. Would that be a proper way for a federal court to behave?
7: No, uh, Justice Ginsburg. But there, there are different types of cases in which this could be resolved. For example, the, the case cited, uh, the American National Red Cross case, where there was a the question of the interpretation of a 1900 uh, federal charter that was a purely legal uh, uh, issue that had been resolved differently by different uh, circuits. There, it may be a difficult question, but it's not a question of resolving factual doubts or state law doubts. It's a question of looking at a, a, the language of a charter and interpreting it. In this case, there were questions of state law intertwined with uh, the factual situation, intertwined with questions of, of the constitutional due process. So the court had to address factual issues, and those factual issues should be resolved in favor of remand.
4: Well, I don't understand what you're answering, me because I thought from your brief you say that when the question is tough, accordingly, where the subject matter jurisdiction question is difficult, the Federal Judiciary already has devised a simple but effective means of resolving the issue remand. Now, that's not what the Fifth Circuit did. It sent it back to the district judge, and they said, you figure out the subject matter jurisdiction question. But according to what you just said, if the principle is resolve doubts in favor of remand, then the Fifth Circuit and Bank was wrong to burden the district judge with deciding the issue.
7: The Fifth Circuit deferred to the district judge to make that decision in the first instance.
4: Instructed her to make it. They didn't defer to it. She said, I don't want to make it. I want to decide personal jurisdiction.
7: But they could have decided it uh, at the Fifth Circuit. They they sent it back down. I don't think that, that uh, goes against what we're arguing here today.
4: Well, what you just argued is that the district judge should have resolved the doubts in favor of um, no jurisdiction, and and just remanded without any decision, saying it's a tough question, a tough question, we're going to remand.
7: Doubts should be resolved in favor of remand.
4: Is that what what that means? Does resolving doubts mean it's a tough question, we don't have to decide it, we resolve the doubt in favor of remand and never decide subject matter jurisdiction?
7: That's not what it means. It depends on the question.
4: Well, let's take this question. Let's take the three bases on which federal jurisdiction was asserted in this case. What should the district judge have done?
7: She should have remanded.
4: After deciding what?
7: After deciding subject matter uh, jurisdiction because. dealing
4: with each one of those three complicated.
7: Complicated issues and, and, and arbitration uh, where there was no arbitration agreement in the very first filing. By Gas was that there was no such agreement?
4: Well, uh, you're saying it's all that easy, but certainly the Fifth Circuit didn't treat it that way.
7: The Fifth Circuit dissenters didn't treat it that but way. No, the, panel the Fifth did.
4: Circuit uh, and Bank wiped out the panel decision, which held there was no. If it had been all that easy, they should have let the panel decision stand, but they didn't. The majority didn't let a panel decision stand that said there is no subject matter jurisdiction. They said this issue needs a thorough airing and sent it back to the District Court.
7: They sent it back to the District Court for resolution. And I, I don't know uh, their rationale for doing that rather than deciding it immediately. But it is, I think, an easy issue.
9: MR. Mr. Hutchinson, to me at least, your position is a little stronger when you confine it to the removal situation. And I want to be clear on one thing. Um, do, you, do you base your, your federalism argument? Uh, simply on the dignitary interest of the state in being able to take, in effect, first crack at subject matter jurisdiction, if that's possible? Uh, Or does your argument rest on on a further suggestion that there is likely to be a difference, difference in result depending on whether state courts or federal courts decide the personal jurisdiction? Do you suggest that the state courts are more likely to find the personal jurisdictional prerequisites present?
7: No, not not precisely that point, Justice Souter. What I am saying is that they may decide
9: it differently uh, and... uh, You're just saying in in, in a close case in which courts could reasonably go either way, it's better to let the state court uh, have the first chance if that's possible. Yes. So that's essentially a dignitary kind of argument. It it is in in part, but...
0: Is there any sense among the practicing bar in Texas that the state courts are more likely to find personal jurisdiction than the uh, federal courts are?
7: No, but the burden of proof is different. What,
0: what is the difference?
7: The burden of proof is in, in uh, under the Kawasaki case, uh, the Texas Supreme Court. The burden of proof is is on the uh, defendant to to disprove every ground of personal jurisdiction. Whereas the burden of proof applied in federal court is the burden of proof uh, is is on the plaintiff. Well, so that that's one difference. Well, it seems
0: odd for some reason. I, I mean,
4: uh, Mr. Hutchins, isn't that a federal, the whole thing, a federal question? I mean, here the assertion is there is no power over me compatible with due process. And since the Texas statute goes the length of due process, we don't have to worry about if it stops short of that. It's It's a question of due process, and yet you're suggesting that the state court could have a burden of proof that makes it easier for a plaintiff to assert jurisdiction over a defendant than in the federal court. I would think that that, since it's, it's a federal constitutional question, would have to come out the same way with the same burdens in both courts. And if the Texas Court have said something different, the defendant has to negate jurisdiction. That's yes.
7: uh, JUSTICE GINSBURG, what, what I think uh, the point here in this particular case is that uh, the issues of due process are intertwined with state law and with the factual situation because one of the issues in the due process argument was under the Texas long arm statute was was there a tort in Texas i think the court got this wrong but the issue that the court addressed was was there a completed tortious act within the state which involved an analysis of, of tort law as well as the facts so I, that's I think
0: you've answered the question mr hutchinson thank you thank mr. you mr, mr. right you have 10 minutes remaining
1: Thank you, Chief Justice. Let me first speak to the issue that was just discussed about burden of proof. We did not discuss that in our brief, so we didn't think it important enough. The Fifth Circuit, in fact, has held that the Texas burden rule is, quote, exactly the sort of state procedural accessory that federal courts are not bound to don whenever they enter the diversity courtroom. Mm-hmm. That's Product Promotions, 495, Fed Second, 483. The Texas Supreme Court has held that uh, that if the plaintiff does not allege that defendant has performed a specific act in Texas, then the mere finding or allegation that defendant is a non-resident is enough to carry his burden of proof. So I really think the burden of proof issue here is not significant. I go back to... Uh, Justice Kennedy's question to my friend. uh, Suppose that uh, pleading the summons and complaint are served on Norge, as I pronounce it. Others have different pronunciations in Germany. And they say, well, we've not been in Texas. We're not subject to the jurisdiction of the courts in Texas. Let us suppose that the case had been brought in federal court. If position for which Marathon has been arguing here is right, it would be necessary for uh, Norge to come in, litigate uh, complicated and novel matters of federal subject matter jurisdiction when it says we have an easy uh, personal jurisdiction objection, an objection that is constitutionally raised. And what I think highlights the illogicality of that is that, as we know, if you are served and you believe that you are not subject to personal jurisdiction in the court of the state, you can simply refuse to go there, do nothing, and collaterally attack the judgment. If you go there as in Baldwin and litigate the personal jurisdiction issue, you cannot then raise it an enforcement action. But if you simply ignore the, the first action, you can then challenge any judgment. I don't think that's what we want to encourage people to do. We don't want them deciding for themselves what the law is and gambling that they will later be held to be right. We want them to go into court and present their objection in an orderly way. But if my defendant comes in and says, I'm not subject to your personal jurisdiction, Madam Federal Judge, it it seems to me that it is wrong to say that that defendant must litigate issues of federal subject matter jurisdiction rather than having the case dismissed because there is no in personum jurisdiction. That, of course, I'm there positing uh, because my friend Mr. Hutchison says his rule applies across the board to all cases, original and removed. And in in an original jurisdiction case, I think that would simply be an intolerable rule. And I don't think that it has much more logic to commend it when it is on on a case that is is in the Federal Court by virtue of removal.
6: Do you acknowledge, Mr. Wright, that that there's a stronger case for what Mr. Hutchinson proposes in the the removal situation? Or or does does it really come down to the same thing anyway, Uh, just a Federal Court acting beyond its — allegedly acting beyond its uh, subject matter?
1: Well, (coughs) excuse me. Justice Scalia, I think that the federalism component becomes more significant when it is a removed case, that here is a, an issue that—here is a case that if it had not been wrongly taken to federal court, as we presuppose if federal court lacks subject matter jurisdiction, that the state court would get to decide the matter, that there would be a dignitary interest in the— uh, in the state court there. So I I think, yes, that is an element that is to be taken into the scales. But I quoted at page 23 of my opening brief a sentence from Justice Black's opinion in Younger versus Harris that has for years been my mantra with regard to federalism, that it means neither Uh, strict obeisance to states' rights, nor regarding the federal government as in control of everything. It it requires a sensitive recognition of the interests of each of the systems. And I think that in the removal cases such as this one, that the efficiency considerations uh, for the federal court outweigh the dignitary interest of the state court in, in retaining the power to decide the issue. If there are no further questions, I thank the Court.
0: Thank you, Mr. Wright. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.